Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The difference between Monopoly and a Euro board game to me is equivalent to the gap that was created between uh, uh, Dungeons and Dragons and Fruit Hill and Champions and, and Middle Earth and, and Rollmaster and uh, Blades in the Dark and Knights Black Age. How often do we see a deceptively simple idea take off and become part of the language of the role-playing hobby? John Four's Five Room Dungeon is one of the best examples of that happening. John and I talk about the origins of the idea and how he built an active community around the concept and where he's taking it next. Stick around until the end when John shares his thoughts on why role-playing games are more prominent now than ever before. Here's a quick shout out to some of our newest patrons, William Payne, Jacob, Isaac Turton, Aide S, Eli Greeson, Kevin Rademacher, Philip Cummings, Jonathan Kennedy, and Freed. Because of you and the other 100 plus patrons, I can bring out this podcast and all the content on YouTube and Twitch every week. All right, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with John. Do you love to unplug and play games around the table? Greetings, friends and floorheads to Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you love tabletop gaming, you are in the right place. Listen as Craig delivers in-depth discussions and interviews with game designers, creators, insiders, and experts. Learn from the people making and playing the role-playing, miniature, and board games you love. Now, enjoy the show. Howdy, friends. Craig here. Today, we're talking to John Four. John may be best known for his five-room dungeon book. For over 20 years, he's been helping people get the most out of their role-playing hobby. 13 books, three online courses, and get this, over 1,400 articles, all devoted to leveling up your role-playing. So, John, welcome to the third floor. Yeah, thank you for having me. I got lost on the first two floors there, but I think I made it. <laughs> well, you look good. He didn't get the nosebleed. A lot of people get the nosebleed once they get up here. <laughs> so uh, obviously, John, uh, creating content is a hobby of yours, but I would assume the role-playing was a hobby before that. Um, well, how did that become a thing? When did you discover uh, role-playing? Well, I had, um, I had a classmate in grade five trick the teacher into running D&D for the entire uh, afternoon for the entire class. And so I don't know what it would be like GMing a 30-person group as an adult, but that, that quickly devolved into a group of dudes that were really interested in it, and then the rest of the class split off and did their own thing. And that was their, that was their Friday. But my Friday, that changed my life forever because I thought, holy cow, this is just such an amazing game. Yeah. Now, I was young. And I didn't quite understand what was happening. And because there were still like 12 people that were interested in the game, 
while the other 30 were off on the other side of the room doing things. Um, I didn't quite understand what it was about and what, what I was playing. So it wasn't until a lunchtime game started a while later that I uh, crashed and then died on my first encounter, uh, dang carrion crawlers, um, that I learned that, oh, it's a game is called Dungeons and Dragons, et cetera, et cetera. And so then that was that got me hooked. And that was in 1980, so 1979. And then my friend um, got the uh, box set for Christmas, and he said, oh, I don't want to read this, books. And so he gave it to me, and that's when I started GMing. And then when I, once I read the books, I thought, oh, well, this is the game that I've been playing, and I'm understanding now. Got it. Anyways, that officially, that Christmas was my is my um, official time I got into the hobby, but I was introduced to it a couple of times before, but didn't quite understand what it was. So if you can remember back, what was it like, you know, going through those books and, and it all clicking, going like, yeah, this is what we were doing before, but now like it has some structure. And was it a, you know, the pull the curtain, curtain away and see the wizard type situation? Well, it wasn't that um, good analogy. It was the opposite where I got deeper. I, I became more immersed and it wasn't, um, well, my interpretation of the wizard uh, curtain is that um, something is exposed that shouldn't be. You see the, right. the underbelly. And uh, not, not that that's what you meant, but here I am, the king of semantics. And so um, for me, it was like, oh, wow, I'm now empowered. And I have, I have all these things. And we still made some brutal rules. I didn't understand that there was a game called Basic D&D and Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. So I went to my hobby store. I found a player's handbook for Advanced D&D, and I purchased that. And we played it. And we didn't realize we were playing the wrong game. Right. Um, and then in certain things like, the spell uh, acquisition list, this is a classic one. I thought that, um, I thought it was cumulative. So I was giving, like, we ran out of spells by third level because you add up all the, and so, you know, that's just me being me. But at the time, anyways, all of those things were, were uh, really cool and interesting to learn. And actually getting into the game finally um, made me realize, oh, well, this is, this is a lot deeper. And all these things that I don't know, I don't know. And so I became hooked. Yeah. I'm not any smarter today. Uh, I don't know <laughs> those things yet. Um, but boy, that, that, yeah, that Christmas was, uh, was fantastic. That was the biggie. Yeah. So now, obviously, you're a fan of Dungeons and Dragons and fantasy role playing. Um, that's pretty obvious. I'd be curious to know, though, was there other times where different types, other role playing games became a part of your life or that you got latched onto, or other games that, that kind of formed who you are as not only a player and a GM, but as a writer? Yeah, I don't know if you'd want to blame any game for who I am today, but um, <laughs> during that period, that weird period uh, that we just talked about where I played the game twice, but I didn't know um, enough about it to go and pursue it, and then it just fell into my lap. Well, during that six months, I invented a game that I thought uh, was in the spirit of that that was about wrestling, because I was into um, uh, you know WWE, but sure, this is before WWE. Sure. And I was into Stampede Wrestling and other, like, the Vancouver wrestling shows um, before WWE, WWE. And then, um, and it was WWF until they got into until a trademark the, conflict, eh? Correct. Until okay. people confused Hulk Hogan with pandas, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> they, um, they both, you don't want to get into a bear hug with either. Um, and so, uh, where was I with the question? I've forgotten the question. So I was asking you, non-fantasy role-playing. When did you oh, right, yeah. first come across that? So you, you created a game about wrestling. Yes, and it was a ladder game. But then I had these primitive rules around the matches, and I had D6s and stuff. Anyway, so um, then, because uh, for the reasons that my, my shortcomings, which I've already inventoried uh, in this call, um, I did not understand that um, spell law and combat law 
for Rollmaster were different game books. And so I went back to my hobby store. I'd already bought, uh, purchased the Player's Handbook, the Monster Manual, and the uh, Dungeon Master's Guide. And Fiend Folio hadn't hit um, Western Shores uh, then. And so I was looking for other things, and I saw um, these this other game system, Rollmaster. But at the time, it was um, sold as separate. So you had Spell Law, you had Campaign, you're, you're nodding. And so I picked up um, Spell Law and, and Combat Law at the same time, and I thought, okay, this is great. Charts and stuff for my games. And I didn't quite understand how they all fit together, but then I didn't understand the game anyways. Sure. Um, so uh, I dovetailed out of that. I came... Um, uh, Space Master uh, and um, and what was the other one? The Merp um, Simplifier Harp. Oh yeah! Uh, wow. By, yeah, because I followed um, uh, who did uh, who did spell on was it Chaosium? Anyways, whoever did the Rollmaster edition at that time, the publisher. Okay. Um, fast forwarding, then I got into GURP space. I got nice. into a, an Amber phase after reading Zelazny, although I never GM'd uh, one for more than one session. Um, and then I hit, and so GURPS, of course, introduced me to, like, I had a crazy Roman campaign that I loved and, um, some science fiction, but that was super surface level and didn't really get off the ground, no pun intended. And, um, yeah, anyways, and then I had a period where it was like D&D. So I mentioned to somebody the other day that I've been playing D&D for 41 years now and I'm getting burned out on it. And they said, what, after 41 years, you're finally getting burned out. So, okay, I, I'm not getting burned out. You're right. Um, but I went through a large uh, period of time where it was just D&D all the time. And that, those are fantastic campaigns for all the editions. Um, but then about five years ago, I started going to a local game convention called um, IntrigueCon. And I'm not a convention player. I've only been to one in Vancouver one time and really haven't been in an area that, uh, was, uh, that has had lots of um, big conventions and stuff. I'm being an introvert. Anyways, um, so I managed to get to a game convention, and then uh, as a player, it exposed me to mini games. So right. I played Blades in the Dark, and I played a couple of superhero games and science fiction games. So that broadened my horizon. So now I'm looking at all these other systems that are on my bucket list and I'm preparing for. And so yes, I, I do play other uh, games, but uh, I guess you have to give me thirty years head start or something. <laughs> yeah. As soon as he's gonna be, he's gonna be playing four E. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So guys, what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a quick break, and uh, keep in mind the Insider Insight series is my opportunity to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers, and creators, and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration, and the methods for crafting their creation. We're going to talk to John about probably what you listening know him most for, and that is the Fine Room Dungeon. We'll be right back. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Right now is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content you're already getting for free. They'll go on and explain that by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, 
but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we commit to not interrupting your episode of Tabletop Talk with such a plea. We pledge not to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month. Even if there's a link in this show's description, and there is, we won't ask you to click it and become a patron. We won't spend time yammering about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting those episodes without ad breaks, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway, enjoy this episode. We needed to clarify that we wouldn't do this type of solicitation. So, John, I, I found you, I would imagine, the way many people find you is I poking around. Um, no, actually, no, I lied. I, I wasn't poking around. I'd heard it mentioned at several, like a couple different podcasts, just, you know, five room dungeon. I'm using the five room dungeon or, you know, I'm using I'm using force five room dungeon. I keep like it's a throwaway line. Right. And I'm like and, uh, you know, I've been out of role playing for for 20 some odd years. So I've been playing a, a drastic amount of catch up. So I kept hearing you throw around. So I, I look it up and um, you're very generous on your website about this is what it is. You're you know, it's not like it's a, uh, you know, a paywall where I have to <laughs> figure out what the mystery of it was. And I'm like, you know what? Uh, I'm going to buy this book and check it out. And uh, you and I got chatting. It's a really neat idea, um, John. So l- l- for those listening that have not heard of the Five Room Dungeon, let's do a quick overview of the concept. Sure. And thank you uh, for letting me know how you find me. I mean, most people find me through that wanted poster in the post office, but uh, <laughs> this is a legitimate route. I, I, I throw those away. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> see if you can collect them all. Um, let's see. The year was about 2002. And uh, I was looking for faster ways to create uh, game sessions. So I've always struggled with pub- uh, running published modules. They felt like setting big exams for me. I get something wrong. All of a sudden, I'm making up lost territory that was outside of the bounds of the adventure. So I, I was uh, ha- homebrewing heavily and, um, and still do today. But I needed a framework or a cheat sheet for myself to figure out how do I create these adventures. And um, at the time, and, and for several years beforehand, I've been studying um, Joseph Campbell. I, I'm reading uh, Joseph Campbell. I wasn't actually a, a student. Don't ask me the theory, please. Um, but he created a bunch of um, books on mythology about different cultures and collected them into different volumes. So I picked up those, and I have a couple of those. And I learned that he discovered commonalities in the, in the stories, which is the knowledge transfer mechanism that uh, we used for years uh, for um, – many, many tens of thousands of years. Um, he found common elements in, in, the, in the way that these stories progressed, the way that they started, the way they ended. And he called it uh, the hero's journey. And he has a complex, it's like a 12 plus step um, process that uh, all these characters would go through from Gilgamesh to uh, Luke Skywalker. And um, he codified that. And then I took that because role-playing games are a different medium, so we're not writing for an audience, and we can't do some of the things because players are in control, and we cannot just say, okay, you have to have, you're leaving the normal world now. You have to have an inciting incident, or whatever the literary theory uh, of, of his model is. So I decided to um, create my own version of that, and then I would be guaranteed to have story baked in, as well as mythical structure baked in. And that seemed to speak to me because of the role-playing games, you know, D&D and fantasy. 
and the, the, the genre and the tropes of uh, fantasy all seem to click together. And so then I started discarding steps and they kind of all boiled down to um, what are five rooms. And in essence, every story is the same. It has a beginning, middle and end, which is kind of obvious. But um, in, in practice, you don't tell a successful story if you start at the end. For example, try starting with a punchline in a joke and you won't get as many laughs. Um, you also shouldn't start the story in the, in the middle. It should have a beginning so that the person understands the context, what the story is about, um, who the hero is, can they identify with the hero, what the hero is wanting, all that stuff. So if you follow along that says every story should have a beginning, middle, and end, then in my five-room dungeon model, I figured, okay, well, the story should have that first encounter, which is basically a gatekeeper or some mechanism that says, well, not everybody who's been here before has succeeded in you know defeating the dungeon and coming out with stuff. There's got to be something here that prevents just the average person from delving in. Um, or if it's a non-dungeon adventure, same kind of thinking. There must be a starting point. And then we have to think, okay, well, what is the end? Well, just before all the hobbits go back home, um, we have a big fight. And so that means, okay, well, the ending is about a big conflict. And then what's the middle part about? And so eventually, after trial and error and kind of talking with people about it at work and stuff, I landed on the five-room structure and then um, published it and uh, got good, um, good uh, feedback from my subscribers who then taught me many, many things, uh, 10 times the amount of things that I've taught them about Five Room <laughs> Dungeon. They just echoed these ideas back and still do today. And, um, and then I turned that, uh, that model into a contest, a community contest. So with my subscribers, newsletter subscribers, I said, right, create a dungeon uh, for me or a Five Room Adventure. And then, um, then I'll edit it and I'll put, put it back up. And that's what I did. And so that was... Uh, Huge amount of effort um, because the, the the public, the writing skills differ. Uh, different have, <laughs> different people have different mindsets when it yeah. comes. It's just fascinating. And so, um, and then just the open-ended nature of it. So I finally got down to 88 entries and then put it out as a free PDF. And then the last couple of years, I combined um, guest articles uh, that the my awesome readers uh, wrote back to me about ideas for fiber invention stuff. And then how my thinking has evolved uh, up to that point. And I put all of that into like the front matter of the book. And then the second half of the book is, uh, is the 88 uh, community dungeons. And so that's probably what you uh, grabbed. And um, that is the, that's where we're at now. So um, five room dungeons is basically five rooms to put in every adventure and follow that. You're guaranteed to have, good story structure and good mythic structure. So it's good for beginner GMs. And then it's a good hack for experienced GMs looking to save time. Yeah, I, I was I was pretty fascinated by it. First of all, the simplicity of it is, is nice, John. It's really, really nice. And, and uh, that can be harder than creating something complicated. Creating something simple can be extremely uh, more difficult. So I appreciated that. And, and the book is an incredible value, by the way. So for those of you listening, don't have the book, just buy the book. It's, it's a really good value. Where else are you going to spend a couple bucks to get 88 dungeons. Um, the other thing to note, too, is that they aren't just underground dungeons. Now, they're in there, but there's a lot of other things to get in there. So I'd be curious, John, if I were, I, I've got the book on my shelf, right? If I were to pull that off, read through it, and understand, you know, the first third of the book where you really kind of delve into and you have the articles about Five Room Dungeon, and then I go back uh, and I was going to through early newsletters. What stayed the same? What has changed over all of these years and iterations of the concept? Yeah, good question. 
Um, I would also like to mention, and feel free to edit this out later, um, I would also like to mention I'm giving that book away free on my website. If someone doesn't want to purchase it uh, from DriveThruRPG, they can download it for free. It's just on my homepage there. Um, so you know, I didn't realize that, but I, I still, I like the printed stuff, man. I love yes, the printed stuff. Same here. You know what? That's lie. Cause I read, I read the PDF. I'd ordered the book and had the PDF. So I did, I did read the PDF. I, I, I thought for some reason in my head, I thought they were connected. So there you go, listeners. If for crying out loud, why haven't you already downloaded it? Go ahead, John. I'm sorry. <laughs> and a couple of caveats, the, the adventures were crowdsourced. And so they're uneven, you know, I tried to even them out and they don't have maps. Um, and so there is a crowd uh, source community endeavor happening right now to find commercially licensed maps that you can get online, like um, from Dyson logos and mapping them, no pun intended to the, to the dungeon. So that started out. Um, that's pretty cool. But um, as for what stayed the same, it's amazing. The five rooms uh, survived contact with the players. <laughs> <laughs> and so those have stayed the same. And I think uh, what has changed is the scope. So the five rooms, if you're not familiar with the uh, framework, the first room is your entrance and guardian. So this is, uh, it, it was meant to be um, thou shall not pass, some kind of uh, barrier or obstacle just to you know, justify a few things in the game and to let players know they're leaving the normal world. They're going on, a, on an adventure in the Bilbo Baggins sense. Then the second room is about uh, role play or a puzzle. And that you can do both role play or puzzle. But the idea there is that at some point in the adventure uh, from Joseph Campbell's literature and from our experience, we need a map. We need to understand what direction to head. Usually the hero has agreed to the call to action, and now they need a direction to go in. And they might have a goal, defeat the villain, get the girl back, get rich, whatever the goal is, but they don't know their first step. So there's a guide role in uh, mythical structure. And that guide can be metaphorical or, um, or, or it could be a Yoda. It could be an actual character in your, in your plot. Um, so the role play slash puzzle encounter is a way to facilitate uh, giving the characters direction. And that means um, it could be they unlock a puzzle and then they get the next steps. They could meet an NPC who is going to barter or just be an ally and get information. But the, the characters have kind of an information slash discovery encounter. Room three is about a setback or a trick. And so you need challenge to make any victory meaningful. Treasure becomes meaningless if it's just out there for free. And so what we need is a, a challenge, but we don't want to trigger the main challenge. We want to soften the players up a bit if it's a, if it's a combat sequence. We want to um, uh, add extra dimensions. So you can't challenge every character and every player in every encounter at the same time. So this is another way to add conflict to your adventure that's building up to the main one to prepare the characters, to show them what they have um, that's coming up against them and, and, and signal other things. But anyways, room three or the, the, the metaphorical room is about um, offering them a challenge which might set them back on their heels a little bit and or cause them to, um, to be tricked, a red herring, or we sucker them into, um, into an unwise decision. And then room four is our conflict. So that's generally where we'll have a combat against the demon, the wizard, the necromancer. Um, it could be also a, a social conflict, um, spiritual conflict, anything that challenges the character sheet, challenges the players, whatever you need. And then we have the conflict, and that's been decided for good or bad, and that is ultimately the outcome or the, or the room number five. Room number five, though, um, I incorporated something from James B. Kars, who wrote a book called uh, Finite and Infinite Games. 
And I don't know why I say finite and then infinite. Shouldn't it be infinite? But uh, don't ask me. <laughs> and um, and so that really captured my imagination. And so in brief, an infinite game is a game that you plan on playing again. A finite game is a game where you make your next move with the intention to close the game off at the earliest possible point. It's a zero-sum game. And a finite game, I'm playing Monopoly. I'm playing so the other players are forced to stop playing in some way. They meet the lose conditions. But in an infinite game, which I call a campaign in uh, RPGs, in an infinite game, we play to open up more gameplay. If right. our if our decisions come to it and our choices come to an end and we can't make any decisions and there's no more leads and the world is peaceful, we end the campaign. And so that that is definitely an end state uh, that you might want in your campaign, but on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, we're playing this infinite game. And so room number five, is about a plot twist. It is about getting the players to point them to the next thing, the next step in the adventure, the next milestone, a completely new adventure, some new problem, whatever that is. And so they, they encounter that in terms of, uh, of the room five. And then room five is also the reward. So they get the gold pieces, the experience points. They save the people, whatever the, the, the conflicts and the stakes work out to be. Uh, it could be that they had to retreat. So their room five might be lessons learned. And then they can mm. regroup and re-engage uh, re with room four. Um, so those five rooms have stayed the same through, I I'm guessing, thousands of hours of gameplay, of actual playtesting wow. by at least 88 game masters who submitted the, the dungeons, but presumably hundreds of game masters. So, um, I, you know, it, luck uh, probably had that model come out the way it was, and it did not need modification, but that for sure has not changed. Whereas I think my thinking of it has changed over the years and just one small example is if i were to do it all over again i would name it five room adventures i know five oh, room dungeons yeah. is is really popular it's attractive it hooks people into uh dungeon games and things so that's you know maybe from a marketing perspective that that was really nice but it's misleading and so i i worry that game masters who could benefit from a story structure a pattern that they could lay on top of their games don't refuse their own call to adventure by saying, oh, I'm not doing dungeons, so this book isn't. Well, you can do what a lot of those motivational speakers do is they put out one book that's super popular, then they put the same book out like seven times, they just change the title. So just redo the 88 things and everything is called, now I'm putting out five room adventures. <laughs> you caught me with water in my mouth. That was hard. I just about, I was breathing water there for a moment. Oh uh, man, funny. no, I... I definitely do not want to be a, a shyster like that. Yeah, uh, be I know what you mean, like chicken soup for the dungeon, chicken soup for exactly. the, the wilderness encounter. Exactly. Yeah, if there's nothing how, how new to, to say, in it's dungeons. Not. Yeah, how to, exactly. How to be your best self in front of a hydra. Oh, that's funny. So the other thing I'd be curious, John, before we move on is uh, reactions that surprised you. So anytime that I'm talking to creators, they, you know, they work on something, they have a small little group they work on, then they put it out there and then everybody starts doing shit with it. Right. And, and it comes back and it comes back and they, they hear things that surprise them in a good way. They hear things that are like, wow, I've never thought about it that way. So I'd be curious in all of these years that you've had stuff bouncing back to you, what are some stunning moments, some things that you distinctly remember you went, holy cow, I did not see this coming or I didn't see it happening. Yeah. Through the lens of five room dungeons, I can think yeah. of three. Uh, the first is um, a person and uh, hopefully I get this name right. Sean Shannon. And uh, he um, emailed me quite a bit of his ideas and, and theories around Five Room Dungeons. And uh, that really helped me think them through. Um, and so, and apologies again to Sean for stealing all the credit unintentionally by not putting your name on, uh, on the article. That was my bad. I don't remember that one. 
I think that was the 2015 or so. Um, <laughs> but he went fractal on his five room dungeons. That was one of the one of the things. Um, there's a GM technique out there called the five by five method. I think that's Dave Chalker. And uh, so this is kind of similar, where um, each room of your five room dungeon could be a five room dungeon. Right. And so my entrance and guardian uh, encounter could also use story structure of beginning, middle, and end of um, entrance and major conflict and revelation or transition and uh, a little bit of role play and a trick in there uh, to boot if you wanted. And so then your room number two could have five rooms. And then further, your first room of your first room could have five rooms in either a physical sense or whatnot. So that was a really cool idea. And of course, you yeah. can play with that all you want. Um, the second, um, the second thing that uh, uh, was really interesting is I was speaking with Mike um, Shea off of uh, Sly Flourish blog. Yeah. And uh, if you haven't had him as a guest before, smart he, guy, no thinks the game really. Yeah, I've, got my, I've got Mike booked. You're not the first Great. person to bring Mike up, so I'm super excited Good. to talk to Mike. Yeah. Yeah. And so we were talking. We produced uh, just finished producing a four point uh, four part video series on uh, how to GM. Uh, looking at specific topics like heists and mysteries and situations and things. And so when I was describing uh, Five Room Benches to him in the video to talk about the model, he said, well, it's like a rope or a snake. And it's like a rope in that each room is a knot. And it doesn't matter where the characters go in actuality in your adventure, even if they start in the middle, that's technically the first starting point for your five-room dungeon. Wherever they are, wherever you go, here you are. I, I don't remember uh, who said that. Somebody really famous like Bugs Bunny. But, um, and so when you apply the five-room dungeon, not as a physical map um, uh, pattern, but instead as a story pattern, so that you can start thinking, okay, well, the next encounter, I've just had my introduction encounter. That's my entrance guardian. My next one should be my map. Should be something that's about role-playing to break things up. Should be uh, something that's, that's about a puzzle, perhaps. And so it doesn't matter what the next encounter is or two or three encounters down the line. Um, that it should involve the next kind of milestone of this story, which is room number two, which is this guide or, or, or role play. So thinking of it like that, where I'm not hard coding onto a map, the room one, two, and three, and four, instead letting gameplay happen, and then I'm just layering that thinking on top, was a really good metaphor. And so... Yeah. We'd already been doing that quite a bit with it, with the theory of it. Um, but that just like uh, that, that was a light bulb moment for me in, in thinking about oh, I can communi- how can we communicate this to people who don't know about this or think of it this way. And then, um, and then the third one, uh, not, not shattering or anything, but just that five room dungeons can be applied to any genre and they really should be called five room adventures. Right. Um, and so, you know, thank you to the feedback I got from people about that. I left it as five room dungeons just because, um, but if, uh, if we applied it to, um, we're doing it as a heist, for example, uh, just talking about that with Mike the other day, um, each of those rooms could actually be um, ported to the trope or what you would expect to see as a consumer of that type of fiction. So yeah. heists have, um, have the, they trigger the alarm. Uh, you have to get through security. Um, you usually have some kind of tight technical scene like the A-team building up and, and so on. So, um, so you can see uh, how the five room dungeon could then be skinned to the genre, the trope, the theme, and yep. then again, it's a story tool, not purely. This is actually a dungeon that has five rooms and only ever has five rooms and is all about the map. So, three things that 
uh, really came back to me and at the best of thinking of that quite a bit. That, that's neat, John. And I, I did not realize the, uh, the literate background of five, five room dungeon, but it makes complete sense to me. And it explain and it explains to me how easily it can be ported from one to another. Cause and I, I forgot who said this was, uh, you know, as soon as the Odyssey was written, every story after that was just a retelling of the Odyssey. And, you know, it's it's a little much, but there's a lot of truth in that, right? Structurally, the Odyssey, we still tell stories the same way. I mean, all of it's there if you read the Odyssey. So that, that having that same concept, it makes it portable. Um, it makes it very easy. So I like that a lot. So guys, uh, also on John's website, he has a ton of different um, packets. Um, and I still haven't quite figured out why you're giving everything away, but that's another that's another podcast. But it's a bunch of different tools and resources. So we're going to take a quick break and come back and I want to talk to John about some of his favorites. We'll be right back. Howdy friends, Craig here. You deserve a new play mat. Here on the third floor, we use mats by Mars. They are scratch resistant, waterproof, wet erase marker compatible, almost free of glare and lighter than neoprene. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. You pick a mat, pick a design, and then you pick an overlay, like one for Marvel Crisis Protocol, Star Wars Legion, or even Malifaux 3rd Edition. Those overlays will really speed up your deployment and make the placement of objective markers so easy. Use our promotion code in the show notes to get a 10% discount on your first order. In the notes of your order, you can even request the third floor logo on your mat for free. That makes the best mat in the business even a little better. So get some new mats, save yourself some money, and help support the show. Go to matsbymars.com. All the details are in the show notes, including the discount code. So we start with the five room dungeon. I start poking around. I get to your website, John, and holy cow, there's just a, a ton of stuff there. Um, and we're going to talk about the articles and tips that you have, which, which is a ton of really good articles written by you. And you've had some other people come on and, and, and put some stuff there, too. Lots. But there is a ton of PDFs and different resources that you've created. And quite honestly, we could spend four hours talking about it. But I, I'd like to get some of your favorites. And they can be old favorites or new favorites, but things that you're particularly proud of that people can grab off the site. Good question. Um, I really do like the NPC tracker. Me too. <laughs> and uh, the campaign tracker. And I've got in my backlog uh, uh, a request to myself to uh, improve both or upgrade both. And they're form fillable PDFs. And uh, they just help. You get overwhelmed with all the details in a campaign. Uh, sometimes if you're playing a one shot uh, or you, you do follow well um, a thick published adventure, you don't need all those details. but uh, as soon as a campaign goes off the off the page or you just homebrew, you, you start needing to track things or your memory goes. At least that's my experience. And um, if you don't get your details right, then the consistency of your campaign suffers and then your whole campaign becomes less fun. You also feel bad about it and also embarrassing if the players say, no, that was Bob the Barbarian, John, for the last time. Uh, and so the campaign tracker is a combination of tools uh, that helps you write out who you invent during the session so you don't forget a detail. They also come with pre-generated names, and the names have been categorized by uh, culture. And I don't know, I'm old, so I don't understand cultural uh, appropriation these days, but I just took a foreign language 
to uh, create a bunch of names from. So then the names would sound the same and have the same kind of theme and stuff. So that's um, that's how that uh, that PDF is is formed. Uh, the campaign tracker um, is inspired by the Hackmaster uh, game system, the fourth edition one. Wow. And that's old, John. It, I like it. It is old. And um, it, there's there's a couple of things that Hackmaster does from a from a flavor perspective that I really like. And so I borrowed those. And so, for example, the campaign tracker has your your dead sheet, and that will um, be your character's last words and a bit of a an homage to the character, and you get to record. Um, as a GM, how how good of a GM you are? No, no, we don't measure campaigns that way anymore. No, that's, that's <laughs> don't listen to me. But um, and that's fun. And then um, uh, the campaign tracker again helps you helps you uh, chunk out your information. Because if you think about it, if you're a homebrew GM, you're inventing an entire world. So everything that exists in our world today is part of the world. So if you were to go invent things, you'd have to start from four billion years ago, or maybe thirteen billion after that. Anyways. That's a terrible metaphor, but there's so much you have to think about when you're yeah. inventing your world. Then you're you're got you have your characters, then you have your adventures, and then you have your encounters, and then you have the bad guys, and then it, all the stuff starts to pile up. So the campaign tracker was first. If you just browse it quickly, it's help, to help you understand how you could think through your campaign. What are the what are the buckets I need to form in my brain, like the compartments? And then once you compartmentalize things, it goes a bit smoother. And then it helps you record things. It's a form fillable PDF. And it also um, has some fun things like uh, famous last words and your your dead page. And uh, you know, at one time I had this blue binder from school and uh, binder paper school. Do you remember all that stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah vaguely. Hole <laughs> yeah. punch. I don't know if they uh, they have hole oh, yeah. punches anymore, but uh, I came across somebody the other day mentioning radio. That still exists. Okay, so I had this blue binder, and it was it was a one inch binder, but the edges of the binder were thicker than the binding. So I estimated it was about an inch and a quarter thick and it was full of dead characters. So whenever somebody Isn't would die, something? I pulled the, I, can I have that? And I put it into my uh, dead binder. So I, I got rid of that in a house cleaning phase, took some pictures, uh, kept a few of the memorable characters. But um, anyways, recording last words of, uh, of characters you're just about to stick a sword through is fantastic. And then um, the campaign tracker has uh, the, the reference. So, once it's full of information and you've done that campaign, you can revisit that campaign. And that actually was the suggestion from um, from readers who said, yeah, the, the reminiscing is key to me in, in a lot of these games. And now you'll have you'll have a record of uh, there's many things other than just stat blocks that you could put in that. Thing. And now I'm thinking of revisiting it. Uh, we've got a, an app um, that I've created with my business partner, uh, Jochen, and it's called Campaign Logger. And so I'm thinking of making a digital version of the NPC tracker and the campaign tracker at that time. And then some others have said, well, what about this? You could add this, you could add that. And so I might add some more uh, pages to those in the future. Those are those are two, uh, I think, of my favorite PDFs. They're uh, also available from the homepage. Um, and then, yeah, don't ask me about any more. We'll be here for a long time. <laughs> well, what I like about it, John, is um, it's an acknowledgement that running games has changed from when you and I started running games and where we are now. And players contribute a lot more to our worlds than they used to. It used to be John and I would sit in our room. We would come up with these ideas. And then, you know what? If a player showed up, great. But quite honestly, they didn't need to show up. We, we were going to railroad them through the whole thing. But games are different now. And, and, and our worlds are more alive now. 
And those two resources have helped me keep track of things because I'm spinning plates, right? We got rules going. We got players' decisions. We got, you know, things are happening off screen that we got to keep track of in the back of our head. And it's nice to have that um, there. So it's a good resource. So like John mentioned, we're going to go to the site. And you're going to grab both of those. But look, there's a couple more um, on there. But uh, what we're going to do real quick, we're going to take a break and let's talk about some of his articles and tips. We'll be right back. Howdy, friends. Craig here. Nothing makes Malifaux easier than having the right tools. Here at the third floor, we love all the licensed Malifaux goodies from Custom Meeple. Not only are they helping support this podcast, they sell custom-made weird licensed tokens and terrain. They sell it all. Crew boxes, terrain, markers, tokens, and even a 3x3 full Malifaux board. Custom Meeple sells a complete M3E token set covering every marker and token you need to play. Custom Meeple are the source for the official accessories for Malifaux. Everything is designed by hand and authorized by Weird Games. Check them out at custommeeple.com, that's with one M, or follow the link in the show notes. Up your Malifaux game and be sure to tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. If you use the promo code third floor friend, all one word, T H I R D F L O O R F R I E N D, you'll get a 5% discount and help support the podcast. It's valid on everything except retail products and playmats. So, I have been amazed, John, because I, I create content. I've, I've got a couple uh, couple thousand more to create to catch up to you. But w- what amazes me sometimes is I'll, some, you know, off the top of my head, I'll create a video or something, and then it'll get a reaction. I'm like, well, didn't, <laughs> didn't expect that. You know, you, 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 find, you find a niche that you didn't know existed, right? You found a, a, a desire. So I'd be curious, as you've, you know, done blog posts and you've put out articles and tips like that, has there any that you've put out there that, like that you, there was a zeitgeist waiting for it that you're like, holy cow, I can't believe that this reaction happened. Um, can you think of any of those off the top of your head? Um, yeah, thanks. Because I just complained to you about that. I cannot remember my inventory. I have something that I create something and then it's out of my memory. I remember uh, how my thinking is now because of it, but I cannot remember the thing. So, um, yeah, there's like three million words out there that go unaccounted for in my mind. Um, yeah. Yeah. But um, one really interesting thing is um, is the character questionnaire. And I initially put out an article. I don't remember when this was. My guess is 2013. Just And it is about top questions you should ask your character. And I came at it from, from a, like a literary perspective, maybe, because Jeff Reentz, um hope I pronounced your name, Jeff, on his OSR blog, has a 20 question questionnaire that is just amazing because it's built for D&D. And if you're a D&D GM, um, and it asks about um, like the, 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 the cleric, the impact of your cleric's religion. You know, what's the, what's the God's cleric trying to change in the world? That's a really cool question. All right, yeah. so the questionnaire that I came up with is, you know, what's your character's favorite color? Um, anyways, I, uh, I came up with that and then I got a big response. And so then I turned that into a PDF um, that you can get off the site too, but um, it has 300 questions in it. And it turns out wow. that there's different modes of, of playing or, or GMing, and they're all, they're all valid. Um, and one of them is the deep immersion of a simulation of a character. Uh, they're, they're trying to create a serious character 
whose actions are a result of their thinking and emotions that are always internally consistent, that are based on deep pillars of personality. And that's not my style of gaming. (laughs) But, But having a questionnaire with 300 questions that starts getting into your personality makeup, your beliefs as a character, um, and what uh, events transpired that made you the way you are as a character. All of those questions resonated uh, with this crowd. And a niche within the niche, within the niche, um, turtles all the way up, is that uh, there's a play-by-forum mode of gaming, and that's quite popular. It's ever it's more popular these days thanks to, um, uh, uh, what's the, uh, Discord. Yeah, uh, thanks to Discord. Like before it was forum, and forum gaming, and before then it was newsgroup gaming. Anyways, play-by-post means you write out stuff and then the players read it and then respond and then you log back in and you read it and write it out and so on. Uh, And this questionnaire is um, really nice as a writing exercise. Hmm. So you can roll or just pick a deep question. Um, So that's that's one thing. I can tell you one thing that fell flat, and I'm not sure why, if you want the opposite (laughs) question. I would love that. Is... um, I thought I struck uh, gold there uh, when not gold. That's uh, the wrong way of saying it. Um, not profit, but I thought I struck like a really good idea as a technique for a GM with my three line cultures. And I had invented something called the three line NPC, which was um, the, the the precedent to another big theory that I just rolled out to uh, to customers this year. But um, three line NPC is okay. What does the NPC look like? Uh, what are they doing? Like, what are you interrupting them doing? And what's a plot hook? And so just having those three pieces of information in your mind means that you can generate an interesting NPC encounter on the fly. You can create an NPC on the fly. You don't have to, like, it just structures your mind for improvisation yeah. stuff. And then um, use three-line NPCs if you're uh, preparing your campaign. If they survive contact with the characters, then you, you put in the time to, to flesh them out if you need. So I thought, well, what we what's missing from... Uh, worlds right now is that they all are the same world just redone very uh, what was it like uh star trek aliens all had were all people with just different face makeup different foreheads yeah different foreheads yeah yeah so it, to me after playing uh umpteenth d20 fantasy world in the day um they're all just clones of each other and i wasn't seeing uh the thinking there that i wanted unlike today which i can go to certain blogs and man those people really have uh fantastic imaginations they're really extending the idea of what it means to be in a a fantasy world so anyways i came up with okay well apply the same thinking of how to kind of distill something down to the essence get the five room dungeon magic going and um yeah that was crickets and I'm still promoting that thing. I still use it. It's still a valuable tool to me, but I still get crickets every time I mention it. And uh, the, the traffic to the I website. I like it. <laughs> I like it. I'm going to use it. I didn't know about it. So it must be buried somewhere, John, or I'm not reading yeah. your emails. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's very clever. And, and it's it's the same type of concept as your five-room dungeon, right? It's a simple a simple formula that can be fleshed out differently. So that I don't feel like as a player, I'm meeting a whole bunch of three line NPCs, right? Exactly. Able, and the same way I'm not going into a bunch of five room dungeons because it's it's just it's the structure that you build the house off of, which I like a lot. Um, so the other thing I want to talk to you about, John, is we have um, similar start times uh, for role playing. Uh, I don't know how old you are, but you're you're around my age. We both started playing the game around the same time. Yeah, around 1872. 
Yeah, right. Yeah, back, <laughs> but I'll tell you what, you think a character sheet's a pain in the ass now, tried marking it in stone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I took a break after college um, and went and did a whole bunch of boring stuff and then decided to come back to, to role playing. And yeah, a whole lot Welcome changed back. in the yeah, a whole lot of change in the 2025 years. I mean, very, very different. I left, I left in, you know, it was third edition D&D, it was GURPS, and then there was a whole, there's a couple other things, right? There's champions and, and hero system and stuff like that. I come back and it's like, good God, like there's games everywhere. Um, I'd be curious to know, John, as someone who did not take the break, as someone who's been here the whole time, as you look at the last 25, 30 years of role playing, are there certain landmarks that you can point to now? Maybe didn't know then, but now you can go, that's when things changed. That's when things changed. That's when things changed. What do you consider some of those uh, signposts or landmarks over the last 20, 30 years? Because the game role playing now is a lot different than it was. Yeah, I agree. Um, I don't know. I don't know how good my answer is going to be. So let me think on the fly here. But one was the advent of the internet. Yeah. And so when I started my website in 1999, there was a handful of websites. I think John Kim's website, Prince Etrogen, and a couple of others, uh, Elfwood. And then um, prior to that, I had found the internet on 1992 uh, with a bulletin board system that had an internet gateway. So I was on 1200 baud and going through another system that dialed up uh, to their internet uh, service provider. It wasn't dialed up, but it wasn't networked either. Sure. Um, it was gum wrappers and tinfoil and uh, straws. But um, And so anyways, I had access to Newsgroup. And so Kim Mohan and Gary Gygax and uh, many others were, uh, were uh, on those newsgroups. I was never on the right newsgroup, but I uh, didn't get to chat with them. But uh, all that thinking... Um, so, taking a step backwards, being a game master, you're very lonely. It's five of them against one of you. You can't yeah. share any of your secrets because that's the point of having a game master. So, as soon as the internet came along, we got out of um, out of pen pals and basically uh, asynchronous, but fairly close to real time communication. And so, the designers got to uh, interact with their fans, and then the fans got to share ideas and. There's like a rat bastard gaming GM uh, forum at one point that I thought was hilarious and, and so on. One, that was one thing. So the communication and the interconnectivity of game masters took us out of our caves and got us introduced to ideas. And that's what um, Dragon Magazine, that's what it did. And that was what uh, Judges Guild did in those days, was trying to be that connector. Yeah. And so now, you know, you and I are benefiting from it. Um, your podcast, your show and everything here and how people can respond to me with their tips and I put them back in a newsletter and all that stuff. So uh, totally awesome. Another one is um, now I don't know anything. I've hardly just um, researched this, but GNS theory, I don't even, I don't even know what it is, but it's about gameism, narrativism and simulationism, I think. And that was on um, big in the, in a forum created by Ron Edwards who had the Sorcerer RPG, I think, at the time. Yeah, Anyways, Ron's going to be on the show. Okay, great. So you can ask him the actual history. Yeah, he's um, a great guy. And to me, that that moment, that's, that, era, that forum, um, created the indie slash story games RPG genre. Wow, okay. Now, again, like Ron, I'll, I'll listen to that episode. He could school me on that. But for me, is when I found things and what I right. was... 
learning about at that time for me, it was for sure. But also from my perspective, um, so this would have been um, early 2000s for me. Um, I had a number of game masters talking to me through email and stuff because of my site. So I did have a little bit more uh, overview of the hobby maybe at that time. Yeah, some but, connectivity, sure. So I think that's when it was around there. And then that uh, triggered into the Magnificent Story Games Forum. And unfortunately, both Ron Edwards Forum slash site and storygames.com uh, is down um, permanently, I believe. But the difference between Monopoly and a Euro board game, to me, is equivalent to the gap that was created between um, uh, Dungeons & Dragons and Boot Hill and Champions and, and Middle Earth and, and Rollmaster and uh, Blades in the Dark and Knights Black Agents. And in those days, um, we had uh, Burning Wheel, which probably would have been the lead example of, hey, let's do RPGs different. But along came other games years later, like uh, Werewolf and then Everway, not Werewolf, sorry, uh, White Wolf's uh, World of Darkness stuff, Everway. Anyway, I think that that was a major turning point when people at that time, and right now, we're in a heavily designed existence. So we all kind of live in a bubble where uh, companies motivated by profits have reduced the friction and rounded the corners on all of the things we interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. And so that I don't know what you call that, but that society-wide tsunami of everything changing, I think RPGs went through the same cycle where it was like, okay, this is the first iteration of products. We have AD&D, &D, we have OD&D, &D, and, and all the games I mentioned. And now um, we have, as designers, using design patterns and uh, palettes of taste and palettes of genre and uh mechanics challenging the assumptions behind every mechanic do we need dice what do dice do in the game um all that thinking came out of that uh time for me those would be two turning points for me at least oh can i mention a third actual play that one's self-evident yeah that was a big that was a big deal uh and and one i don't think a lot of people anticipated but uh, you know what actual play was for me john it was something i didn't know i needed Huh. Right. So at no point was I like, I really want to watch other people play games because I would walk <laughs> into game stores. I'm an old man. I walk into old game stores and I see people playing. I'm like, the last freaking thing I want to do is watch you play D&D. &D, and God forbid, please don't tell me about your paladin because I don't care. <laughs> right. Like if you had told me that, like, but now I love them. I absolutely love watching actual plays. And I like the very well-produced ones that are really more performance than role-playing game. I also like the, you know, just the straight up, you know, let me see how the mechanics work. Um, and I don't know about you, John, but I think about, um, you know, when you get to your, your first copy of Rollmaster and you're sitting there in your bedroom trying to figure the damn thing out all by yourself. There was nobody to write to. There was no, you know, now I get a game and I'm like, oh, yeah, Blades in the Dark. That seems interesting. Type, 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 type. There's 50 different instances of it being played. I'm like, this is amazing, right? This is great. So you kids, you don't realize how good you have it. <laughs> and the tutorials on YouTube. So it's I'm amazing. actually using YouTube to help me um, run games because uh, I don't like reading manuals. Like RTFM is truly applied to me. I don't read it unless it's the last thing I have to do. And um, learning any kind of game now, I would rather someone uh, in a concise manner who is a good teacher record themselves and then then i win that way and i'm glad you made a, a difference there in uh, the type of actual play because i'm the opposite um i like the uh just uh some people putting a cam uh and streaming it in, on their regular game i find i can watch those 
I'm not watching them. I'm watching them in the background because normally games are slow and you're missing the inside baseball and things like that. Um, and then the produced role, uh, the produced shows as a form of entertainment haven't clicked with me yet. But um, yeah, both forms uh, are really helped um, and coincided with the 2015 kind of mainstreaming of D&D. That was a really nice, perfect storm for them. And that, uh, yeah. Very, very interesting. So there's a lot of things to be excited about, right? Uh, For one thing, um, you know, it's mainstream role playing is out there. Uh, When I, you know, I I have I I work for a consulting firm and, you know, five years ago, I wouldn't tell clients that I I have a podcast about, you know, role playing games and miniature games. Now they're like, oh, really? That's interesting. You know, lots changed. But I would be I would be curious as we finish things out, John, is there anything about the industry or anything happening now that concerns you doesn't mean you think it's a problem, but stuff that you can see on the horizon that, that makes you go, I hope, I hope we don't go this direction or I hope it's here and not here to stay. Huh, that's a good question. Um, and the answer could be no. The answer could be Craig, this is golden age. <laughs> everything's freaking awesome. <laughs> so don't feel forced to come up with something. Everything's awesome. It's just never perfect. Yeah. Um, so, with the mainstreaming, we're bringing in lots of people who don't understand. They have no background. And so for a while, uh, the gaming industry was almost run with that touch of the first generation, meaning you understood what the purpose of the game was, even if it wasn't expl- uh, explained well in the, um, in the uh, rules. And uh, those who played almost always learned from somebody who brought them in and showed them. And now with mainstream, you're going to have... Um, you're not going to be able to control that. Uh, and they'll come in without any video game experience, uh, which might be a positive for some, some stories. Um, and they don't have an idea of what fantasy is. They've never consumed fantasy. And of course, um, gaming and uh, the tropes and the mechanics and all the things that you just take for granted uh, by being an experienced gamer. And so out of that, the thing that concerns me is I don't think that we're doing a good job in teaching people how to be good uh, players, but most importantly, game masters. Yeah. And the thing is, it's um, even though it attracts a whole bunch of introverts like myself, it is a highly social activity. And so um, if you don't have emotional intelligence, and there's a variety of those, so it's not like you've got it or you don't have it. Like if right. you're missing certain parts of, of that, then um, if you're not able to read the room, if you're not able to understand the signal that someone is trying to give, give you, if you are not communicating and understanding the effects your words and actions have upon other people, um, you're going to have a bad uh, time of it, and that's going to repel a lot of people. And then the gun, um, gun, a dungeon master doubles down on that because they're the de facto leader of the game. They serve by example. They do 50% of the talking, give or take, and they're the exemplary. What's the word? Exemplar? They, they are the demonstration, the physical embodiment of the game. So you get a bunch of new people or even one player. And if the game master isn't doing a good job in the game, in the story, and in the world, if they're not being a good human, if they're not like that new person, you should just have a little uh, roundtable. Hi, my name's John. I've been D&D for 20 years. You know, I've got my 20-year chip. Um, and what's your name? And, you know, tell me about your character. Welcome to the group. This is so-and-so. Like, if you don't even have the basics. So there's many, many skills that encompass game mastering. And so my concern is always uh, that like Wizards of the Coast, I don't think, has produced a guide or a video series on how to be a great game master and deal with um, people stuff. Um, how to deal with 
people conflicts, which is the number one reason I get an email right now is people conflicts. Uh, so I think that's a gap. Um, my site doesn't, like my site goes into that. It's all about being a better, better game master and helping you have more fun at every game. My definition of that is being better skilled and more confident. Um, but it's still, I have not produced the manual or in my version of the, of the manual. And so others have not as well. So it's my concern. Well, and there's a reason for that because it's not easy, right? Because yeah, I true. mean, uh, as somebody who, uh, who in my career has hired a bunch of people, one of the things that I always tell people is there's there's two, two, two types of buckets when I look at somebody. There's stuff that I can teach you that you don't have. And there's stuff that you need to have I can't teach you. Mm. And if you have the stuff that I can't teach you, but you're missing the stuff I can teach you, then come on in. I got you. I'll, I'll fill in the gaps, right? Yeah. But if you you might have everything I can teach you, you might be the best at that. But if there's things that I cannot teach you that you don't have, then we're not going to get anywhere. And I think there's an analogy there for, for gamers. And it also talks about something, that, John, that's unique about this hobby. Um, you see it a little bit with miniature gaming. You see a little bit of with board gaming, but it's amplified in role playing. It's it's a far more, and I don't like this word, and I haven't come up with a better one. Maybe you've got one. It's a very personal experience. Yeah, uh, and I think it has to do with investment, right? When I'm yes. pushing Warhammer models around, my investment is well, huge, hugely financial because I'd be an idiot. <laughs> but 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 you know, I painted them and stuff like that. But I don't feel connected. Whereas when we role play, we do feel connected as GMs and as players, and there's a certain vulnerability that comes with that. And bad experiences can happen. Um, I think about them, uh, you know, what happened with Kobol, um and that cyberpunk thing, which, you know, I, I don't know. I that. heard. Can you me oh, you, you'll have to check it out. So very, very okay. briefly. Um, and it's a sh it's a shame. And I'm not even going to get into it. It's, it. it's a whole huge controversy. But essentially, Kobol went in a direction and did not read the room to use what you said. So he went in a direction with the story, was not reading the room and anybody who's watching it can see it, but we're seeing it with Monday morning quarterback eyes. So it's very easy for us to see it. Yeah. Um, and he made some really unfortunate choices and, and, and didn't really take the opportunity to, to pull it back. Right. And it went in a right. direction. You'll have no trouble finding it, John. And I don't want to get too far into it. I'd heard about it before I saw it and I heard about him I'm like, what's the big deal? That doesn't sound like a big deal. Then I saw it and you see the reaction to the people, the players and what it yeah. was, what was happening to the players. And it made me really understand things like the X card and lines and veils were things that did not exist when I started gaming that are, that are, I, to a certain degree kind of went, eh, whatever. When I came across it, when I came back, that is watching that happen made me realize how important it is. And to your point, John, we have a lot of new people coming in that, that don't have the same backgrounds and, 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 and hand me down lineage of that. And, you know, I'm used to horror games for the past 25 years being a certain way. That doesn't mean someone coming new to one of my horror games is going to be prepared for the type of horror game I want. And we need to have those discussions. Just the concept of freaking session zero is new, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's amazing. So I completely agree with all of that, John. It's, it's something that, that we, I, I've had to become more conscious of um, as well. And it, um, you have to be, you know, you, you can't teach somebody to be a good, a good, a good human. Right. And 
you know, a lot of times I, so I'll get those, I don't get nearly as many as you do, but I get people that message me about problems they're having with their games. And I'm like, why are you even gaming with this person? Why are you trying to fix this? <laughs> this gets into my whole hiring thing, right? You're, we're talking about stuff that you're not going to teach this person. This, th- th- this is done. <laughs> so like, you're going to have to move on. You're going to have to move on. Um, and there's no way around that. Uh, John, I really appreciate it, my friend. Um, you know, it was, it was really great to kind of, you know, talk back and forth and, um, but it was much better to have you here on the show to, to discuss these things. Um, obviously I'm going to link to your website, John. Is there anywhere else that people can get more John for? <laughs> that makes it simple. A nice portal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. I, I tried the social media thing, but, um, it's, uh, the world is at an all time, uh, low with trust these days. And so you bring new people in, they don't trust the hobby to your point earlier. So that, that causes a lot of friction. Anyways, um, I'm taking a social media break right now. Good so for you. come to my website and, uh, and we'll party uh, there and then have, uh, hopefully uh, some good gaming in the future. That sounds great. And for those of you that stuck around to the end, thanks for listening. Take care. episode subscribe to tabletop talk and share it with your friends check out our content on youtube and twitch follow us on twitter and facebook and stay updated on everything coming from third floor all the links are in the show notes take care floor heads You still here? Look, uh, the podcast is over. And you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers? Well, I mean, if you're here, might as well run over to patreon.com and become a supporter. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast too while you're at it on whatever platform you're listening to. I do appreciate you sticking around. Take care.